local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning, an overcast day here in Kamloops. Thank you for tuning in. We've got a jam-packed show for you. Uh, we're going to set the stage for next week's Alberta election with uh, the Global Mail's Gary Mason in a little bit. We're going to talk about proposed busking changes and more downtown stuff with the uh, KCBIA's uh, Carl DeSantis. And we'll finish the show with BC Liberal MLA Ellis Ross talking about land title records concerns. But first, pleasure to be joined by Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. Good morning, Kyla. How are you? I'm not bad, thanks, Shane. How are you doing? I am well. Hey, I wanted to talk a little bit because I got some uh, some online traction, but uh, you guys are doing something rather neat. You're doing this uh, Can It Fail series on YouTube, uh, looking at various substances, uh, checking them out, breathalyzing yourself, you and Paul Doroshenko, and determining uh, if there's anything to whatever that substance is uh, and failing a breathalyzer. Uh, the one that caught my attention was on, on kombucha, uh, which is awful stuff, but you guys actually actually determined that would impact a breathalyzer test. Why? Uh, because it is a fermented product, essentially what happens is as the um, the active ingredients in the kombucha ferment, it creates alcohol as a byproduct of it. So there is a small quantity of alcohol in kombucha. It's not enough to get a person drunk. It's not enough to elevate somebody's blood alcohol level. So it can be sold to people of all ages. It can be sold to um, children. But the uh, alcohol is enough to cause a false reading on a breathalyzer. Wow. Did that come as a surprise to you? I was surprised by that. Uh, a lot of my clients over the years have told me, oh, I was drinking kombucha and that's why I failed the breathalyzer. And I thought, you know, there's no way. This is just basically like some type of disgusting juice. Um, there's no way that it could cause a false reading. And so when we did the test and, and we um, got that result, I was rather shocked uh, at the outcome and that the uh, amount of alcohol um, was sufficient to trigger a reading on a breathalyzer. Now, you, this isn't the first one you've done. Have you done others, and have they caught you by surprise as well or, or not? We have done others. Uh, so far, um, we've released two videos. The first one we did involved Kikoman soy sauce, uh, which also um, resulted in a reading. That one didn't surprise me because I was aware of that before, but I know that a lot of people who watched the video series were surprised that if you have soy sauce, it can leave residual mouth alcohol that can then lead to a false fail. So far, we've uh, tested about uh, 13 different products. So we're going to be releasing a video every two weeks uh, showing the various things that can cause sales, but also testing some of the rumors out there to try and debunk them as well. So in the soy sauce case, I mean, uh, I'm a huge sushi fan. I eat sushi quite a bit. So what are we talking about in the soy sauce case? I mean, if you, if you dip your sushi in it, or could you possibly fail a breathalyzer? Or is it just drinking it straight up? No, I mean, we only consumed a very small amount of soy sauce, so just enough to dip your sushi in is enough to cause the fail reading on the breathalyzer. It doesn't have to be uh, a large quantity, you know, chucked down in a glass or anything gross like that. Um, it, 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 on these devices, the roadside devices, less than one milliliter of um, any product containing alcohol will cause a false fail. And the fuel cell is so sensitive that it will detect one ten billionth of a gram of alcohol if that is in your mouth. 
So bare bones here. I mean, and you deal with these cases quite a bit. If you're if you're drinking kombucha, or you go out and grab some sushi. Uh, that doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form you're out there and you're bombed out of your mind and you're you're legally impaired. But yet it's causing a reading. Is this cause for concern for people? And, and have people been in fact compromised at a breathalyzer road check uh, because of this? You think? I do think that people have been compromised. I mean, think about how many people leave the sushi restaurant right after finishing their meal and are shortly stopped uh, by police. That alcohol in the soy sauce or in the kombucha is remaining in your mouth for, for 15 minutes from the time it was last in your mouth. So that entire time period, 15 minutes after you last have it, puts you at risk of failing a breathalyzer even though you're not over the limit. And if you have underlying alcohol, an underlying alcohol level that's within the legal limit, it's just going to elevate that and make it higher, um, falsely reporting a higher blood alcohol level. So you could have one beer with dinner, but fail the test and get a 90-day prohibition simply because you were drinking a kombucha in your car. Is there anything people can do to safeguard themselves against this? I mean, other than not drinking kombucha, which, by the way, I highly advise. Uh, but if you're going out to grab some sushi, again, I love sushi, uh, but it, I find it kind of terrifying. I could go out and just, you know, pig out on sushi and suddenly fail a breathalyzer, even though I've never had anything to drink. I mean, there's sort of two approaches you could take. If you are going out and having sushi, wait 15 minutes after you have your last bite before you get behind the wheel. Similarly with kombucha, don't drink it while you're driving. Wait 15 minutes after you finish the beverage before driving. Um, and alternatively, tell the officer up front, I just had some kombucha, I just had some sushi with soy sauce, so that they're aware. Even if they don't know that these things can cause false sales on the breathalyzers, at least that evidence is there um, in the event that you have to dispute a prohibition. Did you like the kombucha? No. no. I agree with your assessment of it, and uh, my, my general public advice is stay away from it. <laughs> Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about, because it's kind of interesting, I mean, distracted driving is a big deal. People uh, are getting distracted driving tickets willy-nilly. There is some degree of, of thought out there that there's there's a serious addiction involved. Uh, it does not seem to be changing behavior uh, over the years. Uh, but we had an interesting situation where somebody had earbuds in their ear, but it was linked to a, a phone that seemed to have been out of battery and dead sitting in a center console, busted for distracted driving. Fair or no? I think that it's unfair in the sense that you shouldn't be pen penalized for having a ticket for distracted driving on the basis of a dead cell phone because it poses no distraction. The thing that people are concerned about with the cell phone laws is people taking their eyes off the road, um, taking their hands off the wheel to check messages, to reply to messages, to look at their Twitter, um, to answer calls, those types of things. You can't do that with a phone that has a dead battery. I do agree, however, with the two earbuds rule. Um, and the reason for that is that your ears and your ability to hear is as much a part of safe driving as is your ability to see. The sound of an oncoming siren, a vehicle honking to warn of an approaching danger, the sound of somebody accelerating too quickly, imposing a risk, all of those things you need to be able to hear. And if you have both of your ears blocked with earbuds, you're not able to make the same oral observations that you would if you were only listening to a device or only had one earbud in your ear. So I do agree with this judicial justice on the two earbuds thing i don't agree on the dead battery now i see people uh not all the time but you know frequently enough it stands out that are cruising down the road with earbuds in their ear listening to something i assume which i always find a little odd uh, but apparently that's a no-no 
Uh, two earbuds is a no-no. The law says that if you are using earbud-style headpieces um, with your electronic device, that it's only permissible if earbuds are worn in only one of the ears. And the cord for the earbud can't interfere in any way with your operation of the vehicle. So you can't have it um, in a way that obstructs your access to the steering wheel. Do you guys see a lot of people calling you up to try and dispute a distracted driving ticket, or is that not really a thing? Oh, a lot of people are disputing them. In fact, the recent statistics released from the BC Provincial Court in their annual court report shows that distracted driving tickets have had a huge impact on court uh, time and traffic court. Um, of all the various sections of court that the Provincial Court deals with, uh, traffic and bylaw offenses are increasing in uh, the number of court hearings, whereas everything else is decreasing. Um, and this is a direct result of the province continually increasing the penalties for distracted driving making it almost impossible for people not to dispute their tickets because the financial incentive of success is much greater than the consequence of, uh, of uh, failing in, in court. Oh, that's rather interesting. Uh, did you anticipate that would be an outcome or no? I did. Every time they've raised the penalties, uh, I've, I've thought to myself and I've said publicly that this is just going to lead to more people disputing their tickets in court and it's going to lead to a greater burden on the court system. For every dollar that the province brings in um, in fines and, and driver risk premiums and other costs associated with distracted driving tickets, they're losing money in the increase in the amount of time and resources required in court. So ideally, I mean, distracted driving is a legitimate problem. How, how do you think the government should, should tweak that in order to address sort of this particular side effect? I think, first of all, we need to revisit some of the way that the law is drafted. If it is the case that the law prohibits having a phone with a dead battery um, and, and having that in your vehicle, that's absurd. Um, and the law needs to be rewritten to be more sensible and to achieve what the aim of government is. Uh, and I also think the government needs to be better at getting the message out to people about what specifically constitutes distracted driving. The disputes that I see in court are not people who are, you know, actively texting while they're driving, actively holding their phone to their ear. The majority of people who are in there disputing it are people who are disputing things like having their phone uh, plugged in and not secure, or people who are um, uh, who are just moving the phone from one position to another. People with the two earbuds in. People who aren't aware of the nuances of the law. And the government needs to make that messaging more clear if they want to eliminate this many disputes and they want to change people's behavior on the things that police officers are actually ticketing for. And I guess my last question on the marijuana front, have you guys seen any kind of explosion on, on uh, marijuana impairment activity or no? No, there's really been no significant uptick in the number of cannabis-impaired driving cases. That doesn't surprise me, frankly, um, because we have uh, very few officers trained. We don't have the, um, the community policing unit uh, ready yet that's going to deal specifically with cannabis cases. Um, and as far as the Drug or Drug Test 5000, most police forces um, in British Columbia are avoiding using it. So there's not a lot of the investigative tools in the hands of police to investigate and prosecute these things. Kyla, it's always a pleasure. You're a lifesaver. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And that's Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. We'll take a quick break on The Woodford Show. And Carl DeSantis from the KCBIA will join us next. Radio NL, radionl.com, local news now.
From Victoria, B.C. to Victoria Street, Kamloops, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford takes you inside politics. More jaw-dropping money laundering bombshells, and in the House, the Speaker's looking more and more like a stern kindergarten teacher dealing with unruly children in question period. Those topics and more with the panel as well as special guests, all in the next Inside Politics. Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Tomorrow morning, following news at 9 on Radio NL. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to welcome in studio this morning from the Camelot Central Business Improvement Association, Carl DeSantis. How are you, man? I'm really good and I'm honored to be here co-hosting your show this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Feel free. I I told you, you can host. I I would love some time to go grab some breakfast. You you should have told me. I would have to drive through. (laughs) Hey, I brought you in because there's there's this issue that's getting a fair bit of attention out there. It's the idea that buskers would cop up, what is it, a $30 membership fee and another $10 for a street performing fee to go out there and play in our streets in downtown yeah. Kamloops. So, I heard about it. Yeah. yeah. Do you know Did when you, I heard about it? What'd you hear about it? I heard about this yesterday when uh, most of the community heard about it in the newspaper. And uh, I, I it, you know what, I give kudos where kudos are due to the city, but this one here uh, fell through the cracks. So uh, hang on. So y- this is a downtown initiative yeah. to which the KCBIA knew absolutely nothing and had zero consultation before it. Zero with a capital Z. We, we were not consulted. Uh, I didn't hear about this, and I'm disappointed that uh, something that impacts so many people and our downtown this way, uh, we, weren't, uh, we weren't informed. Okay, well, that's yeah. that's certainly not cool. Um, what yeah. do you think of the idea itself? I, I'm not in favor, uh, and again, it's it's a tough conversation right now because I, I've only got this newspaper article from yesterday and uh, some uh, comments on Twitter that I've noticed. But uh, uh, as presented, uh, I, the spirit of it for the Buskers Festival to elevate the talent pool, I'm in favor if there was some way that uh, we could elevate them for the four days in July. Yeah. Uh, however, regulating... Uh, requiring people to uh, pay a, a licensing fee to perform downtown, you know, it's a mixed message. Why would we do something like that if there's not a problem already? Yeah. Here, one sense, we're getting feedback from uh, community, from businesses, uh, suggesting that they don't like people panhandling, they don't like people walking up to them with signs asking for money. And fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Right? So these some individuals are uh, uh, grabbing a guitar or some instrument, uh, juggling, trying to animate our downtown. Kudos to them. And uh, why is that a problem? Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Have you ever heard of a problem busker? Uh, n- not a problem busker, no. <laughs> no, I, is that a new phrase? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I'm trying to rack my brain to think of where the problem is here, right? Like, you know, yeah, is there, yeah. has there ever been a time when someone has been like, oh, my God, the guy playing the flute, enough already, and yeah, uh, exactly. 100 people are ringing down, what's going on with the flute guy? Yeah, um, no, I don't see that happening, so therefore, where's the problem? Why do we need to address it? Well, that's a really good question, and uh, one that I'd like to be part of a conversation with uh, the city and uh, Arts Council as well to, to just see where, where this is coming from. I can tell you that last year when uh, we were planning the Buskers Festival, the inaugural Buskers Festival, downtown. Um, I was part of those discussions in the planning. And uh, there was a discussion about should there be um, a license for buskers approved to perform during the festival. Yeah. 
you know what, that's a really interesting conversation and one I would support. I don't know how we would do that. Is it like a talent show? Kamloops uh, has got talent? I don't know. Uh, but just to arbitrarily require people who are uh, underemployed or unemployed to buy um, a membership fee into the, uh, the this buskers club, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, it's counterproductive and, and it's not well thought thought out. What about the capacity for enforcement? So now you don't comply. Shane Wordford's downtown playing a guitar, singing rather well. Now that would be be a nuisance busker. I can almost guarantee you there would be complaints. All right, maybe it's Howie. Howie's out there playing his guitar. And uh, what what are they going to do? Are they going to just ask you to move along, or are they going to enforce it? And yeah. they enforce it to how, to what extent? Yeah. I mean, we we, we uh, require or we ask our RCMP, our bylaw, to do so much. Do they really need to get involved in this? Yeah, I kind of wonder if it's if it's uh, some kind of an overreaction to dealing with the vagrant situation. Like I, 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 I I'm guessing I'm yeah. not privy to what's happened, and yeah. then obviously you aren't either. Yeah. But I just I, I struggle to understand where this came from. So what I, I just wonder if it's a way to kind of arm bylaw officers with a, with another mechanism to tell somebody to move along. That's the only thing I can come up with. Well, perhaps. And uh, you know what? I, we could sit here and speculate. And uh, I, I, I think the best solution is to work with the city. I, I spoke with Sean Smith, actually, before I came in here. Yeah. And uh, I think going forward, it would be really nice to sit down with uh, Sean. Uh, as I understand, he's part of this. Sit down with the Arts Council and uh, downtown and uh, Buskers Organizing Committee, perhaps, and just talk about this. You yeah. know, what, what is the spirit of the, this proposed legislation? What do you want to So are you calling for them to stop and talk to you guys? How do you, how do you want them to proceed? They don't need to continue with this. Yeah. Uh, the, the feedback I've received since this newspaper article yesterday uh, is completely negative and non-supportive. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, listen, we only got a few minutes left, but I do want to talk because another major development uh, downtown as of this morning, and that's the Paramount Theater in the corner mm -hmm. of Fifth uh, and Victoria. Uh, yeah. Looks like uh, Paramount or uh, Landmark, who owns the company, is is yeah. pulling up sticks and uh, is getting out of town. They're going to yep. sell this thing, uh, shutting it down as of next week. Um, I assume it's both a negative and a positive. The negative, obviously, is it sideswipes the Kamloops Film Festival, which is having a like just beginning to close down and having a record turn this year, yes. I'm told, yeah. which uh, brings a lot of people downtown, invigorates, provides some activity. Awesome. The other side, this is an old uh, building that perhaps we could see something exciting and some renewal there. But your reaction to the news this morning? Well, you know, I, I heard it again first this morning on the radio. Uh, I, I was... And what uh, do you do over I, there? Yeah, I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> people lose my phone number. Uh, we'll have to include it as a public service announcement on your Twitter account <laughs> or something. Um, you, you know, there, there's been a few discussions about the future of that building. I'm aware of that. Yes. And uh, where that ends up, I, I'm not sure. I'm hoping that with uh, with this announcement this morning that uh, there's a happy ending uh, down the road. I, I think that there's something uh, uh, in the works. I don't know what that looks like yet, but right. I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, that this isn't over. The future for the Paramount is not over. Maybe a different name, but I think that something will be coming down the tubes. So you think it will retain a movie theater business model there? I hope something like that falls uh, falls into place, yes. Absolutely. Do you know for facts that there's conversations in that direction or no? I know that there was a conversation going that way, but I, but I yeah, I do. Uh, you're, you're looking a little nervous now. <laughs> you're, Who is it, Carl? You know, why is it out. What's with the spotlight that just yeah. turned on here? No, you know what? Well, I, I was sort of hopeful that Landmark, because what they did in Penticton is Landmark had a, a, an older theater like ours here, and they demolished, and I forget if they built in the same location, or so, but they stayed downtown. They have a wonderful Landmark theater downtown, and I always thought that would be an, that 
would be a lovely addition to our downtown and help with the film yeah. festival folks, which which would be great. But I, I don't know where they're going. You know, it's it's like a burnt forest. You know what? With with an ending, there's a there's an opportunity for something new to grow. And, yeah. Uh, and I think that that's what we're going to see. And uh, I'll look forward to. Uh, and it's an more. intriguing location because we have the 500 block renewal, and that could be a, some kind of a component of that. Hopefully. Absolutely, and we look forward to being part of that downtown. Yeah, and hopefully uh, it does not affect the Camelot Film Festival. I, I talked to their uh, their executive director this morning, who's Dushan. Yeah, Dushan. He's a little, he's a little shell shocked, and obviously been handed a fairly big problem. He's only got to figure out. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, best thoughts, to those guys. Okay, Carl, appreciate the time. Always a pleasure. You're sticking around to co-host the other half. What are you doing? Well, I'm going to go for breakfast now. <laughs> Son of a. <laughs> All right, take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, Global Mail's Gary Mason joins us to talk Alberta election talk. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We are five days away from Albertans going to the polls to decide who is going to win the Alberta provincial election in a uh, what has so far been a rather divisive and interesting campaign. A real pleasure to be joined this morning by the Global Mail's Gary Mason to get a sense of what we might see next week. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Shane. Hey, thanks for coming on. Uh, listen, you're in Alberta this morning. I know that you've been keeping your finger in the pulse of what's going on out there. So, uh, simple question to you off the top: Does Rachel Notley stand a chance or no? Um, yeah, good question. Actually, <laughs> uh, I think. I mean, I, I I think she probably stands a real far flung chance. I mean, let let me put it this way. I think she stands a greater chance today than she did at the beginning of the campaign. I think things have polls have tightened a bit. I still think it. I think I still think it's a long shot. But uh, I would say that the United Conservatives and Jason Kenney have helped her quite a bit uh, and helped certainly helped close the gap. Whether it closes enough for there to be a surprise and kind of miraculous come from behind victory, I still think that's doubtful. Yeah. There's been a series of uh, quote-unquote bozo eruptions that have plagued the UCP in this campaign uh, leading up to and including after uh, Jason Kenney's rather disastrous interview with, with Charles Adler on CKNW. Uh, the question is, is Gary, do you get a sense that this kind of stuff is getting any traction with the electorate or no? Uh, I, I think it is. I mean, I, I think that uh, certainly the, the latest polls that have come out uh, post that interview with uh, Charles Adler uh, that's received so much attention, um, I, I think it has really hurt Kenny. Uh, it certainly hurt him way more than the previous, quote-unquote, bozo eruptions, where candidates, you know, either candidates who had already been declared or candidates that were seeking a nomination had to be uh, dropped because of uh, associations with either racist, racist, homophobic, or Islamophobic comments. I mean, it, it's unbelievable that that actually the number, it, it's something like 25 candidates, or, yeah, candidates, people who either had won the nomination or were seeking a nomination had to be dropped because of uh, because of controversial comments related to those uh, matters that I just spoke of. So, uh you know, all it took in 2012 for Wild Rose to lose the election was one bozo eruption. Uh, the United Conservative Party have had several, and for the most part, it didn't really hurt them or didn't seem to hurt them. 
until Mark Smith's comments surfaced, the tape of Mark Smith, who is still a candidate and remains a candidate for the United Conservative Party. Uh, he had given a sermon at a church in which he dis- denounced uh, homosexuality, kind of obliquely uh, compared it to pedophilia. Uh, and I, I think that, that that has been a real, uh, that was kind of a turning point. I think a lot of people, especially women, I think, have said, you know, enough's enough. I, I, I think that uh, uh, they don't trust this guy. There's a lot of things going on in Alberta, and uh, I mean, there's the the frustration on the pipeline side. Uh, there's the divisiveness along the left and right uh, political divide. Uh, there's the frustration around unemployment. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, from your perspective, uh, having followed this thing closely and being in the province now, uh, what's driving the electorate in your mind? Well, I I think I, I still think the ballot box question, ballot box question is who's best to turn the economy around and i think that that's where the ucp still wins because a lot of people you know just look at the state of the province's finances with the debt ballooning you know every year and you know unemployment's still stubbornly high uh there isn't a pipeline uh that people can turn to so I think there's a lot of anger in the land, and I traveled uh, around uh, Alberta a couple weeks ago, and it's it's definitely there. It's palpable. Um, what, what's interesting, though, Shane, is that a lot of people don't blame Rachel Notley. She remains an incredibly popular politician, and I think a lot of people, st- you know, believe that she worked as hard as she could to to help, you know, Alberta and help get a pipeline, but that she was kind of burnt by Justin Trudeau. So, I mean, I don't think people are taking it out on her, per se. They just don't believe that the NDP is the right party to govern the province at this time. I think that they, and I think that that's the one sort of saving grace that Jason Kenney has. Uh, I mean, if, they, if the economy was humming along and there was a pipeline and the UCP was having these bozo eruptions, I, you know, I, I think that the NDP would be returned to, to power, but uh, that's just not the case. Uh, of course, uh, Alberta traditionally is viewed as a very conservative province. Uh, we had the NDP government, which was a surprise back in the day. Uh, do you think that the province is, is still got a firm iron grip on its conservative roots, Gary, or do you think that, that there's some change there, that there's some progression, uh, growth of progression, I mean, obviously in Edmonton, but in other parts of the province or no? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think it's the same province that it was, you know, 15 years ago. You know, when Ralph Klein was the the premier, or even Ed Stelmack, for that matter. I mean, there's been a, a lot of young people that have come to the province, and they hold views that are probably a lot more progressive than, you know, the Boomer generation. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I think I think there's a bit of a split in the province that way. Um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, there's an NDP government in power, something that was inconceivable, you know, even, you know, five years ago. And then you have very progressive mayors in both major centers in Edmonton and Calgary. I mean, Nahid Nenshi was the first Muslim to be elected, you know, uh, mayor of a major Canadian city. And, uh, you know, Don Ivinson is a, is a real center-left mayor in Edmonton. And those are the two biggest markets. So, um, I don't think that, you know, it, uh, I think that that, that 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 reality defies the redneck image that Alberta has owned for so long. I mean, I still think, you know, they're going to probably vote conservative here in this case, but I don't think that that means that the province is a strictly conservative province like uh, most of the country believes is the case. 
Now, I know that uh, we do have a couple of minor parties at play here. They're, they're not anywhere near topping the polls in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but a flyer that was passed around in at least parts of, uh, of Alberta caught my eye. And, it, and it's from the NDP basically saying, hey, listen, you vote for the Alberta party, you get Kenny. You vote for the Liberals, you get Kenny. You vote for Rachel, you get Rachel. Is, is there a, a sense from you that the NDP are now looking at the polling numbers and saying, okay, uh, we can't catch the UCP, so now we need to hamstring the other two parties and get as many of those voters under our umbrella as we can? Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. I think that that's definitely the strategy. I, I, I think that I think that the UCP, or the UCP, the, the Alberta party, could have been a, a bigger factor in this election if they had had a more compelling leader. I mean, Stephen... well-known person but he's not he's not a compelling figure in terms of leading a party and and enticing people to vote for uh for that kind of change i I just don't think that the alberta party platform was very innovative it didn't offer people uh much that was different from the other parties on either side of of various issues so uh, i think that the liberal party uh i i think Personally speaking, I thought that they had the most realistic and honest platform. Often, it's easier for you know third parties or you know so-called fringe parties to 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 offer those kind of honest assessments of where a province is at. Uh, David Kahn, uh, you know, uh, it would be nice to see him elected. I'm not sure he's going to be a smart guy, uh, very progressive, not a great public speaker, but you know, at least he's put together a platform that that's honest in terms of. Uh, acknowledging the very, very big questions about the Alberta economy and its future, and uh, you know, addressing things like a sales tax, you know, uh, which you know, no party in its right mind is willing to even go near because people would revolt. But, um, but anyway, I, I don't expect uh, either of them to be much of a factor. I'm, I'm not sure even Mandel is going to be able to win a seat in Edmonton, which is where he's always run. That's his base. And David Kahn, again, I don't, I don't know if he's going to win. So uh, it, both of those parties could get skunked. Uh, last question to you. We're seeing uh, record turnout in the advanced polls. I believe the number I saw the other day was somewhere around 140,000 people voting so far. Um, twofold, that could be traditionally the sign of a change election, or uh, as we've seen here in BC, advanced polls are just getting increasingly popular, and, and sometimes huge turnout numbers beforehand don't mean uh, an increase in actual voting numbers at the end of the day. What's your sense of, of what you're seeing in advanced polls? Well, I, I, you know, I, I really don't know how to read them in terms of who they favor uh, in, this time around. I, I do think that uh, the numbers here show the, the uh, enormous interest in this election. I think it tells you that a lot of people, a lot of Albertans feel that there's a lot on the line here. I, I suppose in my gut, it would suggest to me that it probably favors UCP. I think there's a, a, there's a at least at the beginning of this campaign, there was a, there was a, a, an enormous sense of change, uh, the need for change in, in, in the government. So, uh, you know, I, I would, my hunch would be that it favors UCP, but I guess overall, the only thing I could say for sure is that, that the enormous numbers in the advanced polls show that, uh, that there's just enormous interest in this election. Absolutely. Gary, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of your day. 
My pleasure, Shane. Thanks very much. That's uh, Gary Mason from the Globe and Mail. He is in Alberta this morning as he watches the Alberta election. I'm sure he'll probably be there until Election Day next week. Uh, Some insight into what's going on in the province next door. We'll take a quick break and we'll return our attention back on the land title records issue with BC Liberals MLA Ellis Ross right after this. Radio NL. Radio NL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. The issue of the removal of land title records continues to resonate here in Kamloops. Uh, we learned yesterday one of the newest developments is that Chief Mike Laborde of Whispering Pines First Nations retained legal counsel. Uh, he wants a cease and desist order in getting those land title records removals stopped. Uh, pleasure to welcome to the program the MLA for Skeena, also the former Chief Counselor of Heisla Nation, Ellis Ross. Good morning, Ellis. How are you? Morning, Shane. I'm fine. How about you? I'm well. Uh, thanks for taking some time to join us this morning. Really appreciate it. Uh, you've you've taken to Twitter on a number of occasions to chime in on this land records issue. Um, why is it so important to you? Well, because I've been dealing with First Nations issues, specifically rights and title issues, for the better part of 15 years. And what and what John Horgan and NDP are doing, not only to the the Kamloops area bands, but First Nations all across BC, is is pretty disgusting. It's it's. They're 20 years behind the times. And uh, this is just the latest example of how they're outright dismissing uh, First Nations interests. Now, you made a point on Twitter saying, listen, this is an issue the Assembly of First Nations has chimed in on, the B.C. Assembly of First Nations, the Union of B.C. Indian Chiefs. Uh, this is obviously, uh, we're, we're aware of how important this is to First Nations as far as using these original land title records for, for uh, land claims, for water claims, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you live in a part of the world where I believe the land records were removed some time ago through the Prince George area. Uh, how, what's the effect been there? Well, it adds costs. And, you know, this is fundamental to rights and title case law because we're really talking about evidence. And I made a call to those uh, different uh, First Nations organizations, not on politics, but basically for the fundamental of evidence because, quite frankly, there's no reason for any First Nation at at this stage of the game to trust the government. I don't care who's in government because rights and title is such a legal battle. It's so sensitive. And for the, for the government now to take out original documents at this stage of the game when there's been so much progress made on First Nations issues in the last 15 years, and then for the government to do this, uh, it's just a slap in the face. And I understand exactly what the Kamloops bands are feeling right now. Um. We learned in estimates that Doug Donaldson, the forest minister, was informed verbally uh, from the land title authority that they were going to do this. Uh, they were going to remove the Kamloops land title records. And it's not just Kamloops. It's a big swath of the area around us as well. Um, through that time, not a whisper to the community. Uh, eventually, they went ahead with the move. It leaked out. Uh, we've had a bevy of news stories. The premier has chimed in. Um, as of late yesterday, when I checked in with all the parties, Ellis, there has been no consultation, not to city council, not to the regional di- uh, district, and certainly not to any of the First Nations bands in the Kamloops area. Um, in your mind, is is that a serious oversight, uh, uh, dropping of responsibility? Why is no one talking to people about this? This just it seems to be the NDP government way of doing things. Uh, they're doing it under the caribou issue. Uh, they're, they're, they don't talk with First Nations who support resource development. Uh, they only talk with uh, activist leaders. I mean, give you an example of what, what would have really angered me is when the Premier made promises for consultation to the First Nations leaders, they sent a staffer 
you got to be kidding me. I mean, every First Nation leader, when they're, they're talking about the principles of rights and fellow case law, the very first meeting that should happen is leader to leader. You don't send a staffer. That is an insult. And then First Nation, this is how far behind NDP are. They still think that you can still send staffers to deal with. And now, now they're hiding behind the idea that, oh, somehow the organization has been privatized by the liberals. That's not the point. The point is the evidence, and the government still controls the evidence. They're controlling the information. They could stop this right now. The government knows this. They could stop it, and they could sit down with these leaders, and they could work this out. Is that something, do you think, Ellis, will have? I mean, I talked to Mike Laborda yesterday, and obviously, as I mentioned, he's retained legal counsel. He wants to cease and desist. Uh, he's more than willing to go down that road if, if, if that's the way it works. Uh, but he also added to me that he's also an optimist, and he's hopeful that, that cooler heads will prevail and that someone will come out and talk to them and consult as they should. Do you hold out any hope that, I mean, with all the news stories and stuff, and again, the premiers chimed on uh, in on this uh, on my show earlier this week, um, do you hold out hope that, that that's true? That's true that cooler heads will prevail and that someone will actually pick up the phone uh, or come out here in person and do what they should have done months ago? Even if it does come out, this shouldn't have happened in the first place. There's a lot of First Nations people in that house right now who always claim their First Nations heritage that are sitting on both sides of the house and they know what a sensitive topic is. They know what a legal legal problem this is for First Nations. In my opinion, uh, what happened here is speaks to either incompetence ignorance, or they, they are deliberately imposing, and these are their words, colonialist measures against the Kamloops Heritage Band. They're always talking about colonialist me- measures in the House. They're always talking about the settlers' impact on First Nations. Well, here you are imposing the same type of measures that you actually work against in the House. It's very hypocritical to actually say something like that. In my opinion, this never should have happened. Uh, there, there was no reason to move the documents. And if there was, you should have went to talk to these guys first because that's basically the foundation of rights and title, which is evidence. You mentioned for, for Northern First Nations, it's added a lot of cost. The idea here is digitization. We're going to move them down to Victoria. We're going to digitize them. We're going to store them in a quote-unquote safe place, even though there's obviously more of an earthquake risk there than there is in Kamloops where we don't get them. Um, Speak to me about digitization. How important are the original records for First Nations people as to oppose to a digital record that they have to request and is then sent to them uh, online? Both are important. In fact, every First Nation is talking about digitization. Today, we've been talking about it for 15 years back in Kitimat Village, but we always talk about the original copies as well. Like we, we want a record, of course, but we want a record of every single detail we can get our hands on. We don't want just a photocopy of the, of the front page and then just store it away in some back room someplace. No, we've got to be aware of where that actual original copy is. Because when you get into the court situation, I mean, people know this from the Chilcotin title case, any little technicality can set you back. It can set you back to the starting of the, of the court case. And in some cases, we've been in court for 10, 15 years. That period is over. That, period, that, that time, and it's a, we shouldn't be in court anymore, especially on a technicality like this. First Nations that are expending extra dollars like this, when they could be using that money for other services and programs, that is, that is a shame. That is an absolute shame. In today's day and age, the NDP have got to wake up and realize that this is 2019. First Nations are not stuck in time back 20 years ago. The, the, the times have changed. In the removal of land title records from northern BC in the Prince George sort of catchment area, are you aware of any records that went missing or were lost in that in that transition or no? 
No, but uh, we were lucky because we we, we retained uh, really good resident title uh, lawyers that really found the original documents, and we made a record of it. And so we submitted that uh, into the treaty process as well as into our resident title uh, cases when uh, we had to be consulted on projects. So we were lucky in that respect. Uh, and last question to you, sir. Uh, from I mean, obviously a big issue again here. Uh, from First Nations outside of the Kamloops area and to the level of UBCIC and et cetera, how many, how many eyes from the First Nations world are watching what's going on here in Kamloops uh, with interest? Well, I'd be surprised if, if First Nation leaders uh, are not watching this with a lot of concern uh, because this is, not, this is something brand new, by the way. I've never come across this. Uh, I've always uh, looked at this in terms of decisions that were affecting the land base or reflecting the, the title or the, the rights in question. I've never seen this in terms of the evidence. Uh, if, if there's First Nation leaders who aren't, who aren't aware of this or don't understand the impact of this, then they're, they're going to get the same thing because it's going to happen all over the place. It's, uh, it's a very complicated issue when you talk about rights and title. Yeah, pretty no. complicated, and uh, you know it's 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 a shame that it has to come to the legislature like this. But uh, right now, nobody is in Chief Labordier's corner except those area first station chief councillors. And I just want to tell them I'm in your corner because I know exactly what's going on, and I know the impact, and I I know the consequences. Ellis, uh, thanks for taking some time this morning. Really appreciate your words. Very welcome. Thank you. That's the MLA for Skeena, Ellis Ross, almost also a former chief counselor of Heisla Nation, talking about the removal of land title records from Kamloops. And that brings to an end this edition of the Woodford Show. We'll see you again tomorrow. Of course, the name of the show changes Inside Politics, coming your way Friday morning. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.